This episode is sponsored by Rode Microphones, presenting My Rode Reel, the world's largest short film competition. Now with over $500,000 in prizes to be won, visit MyRoadReel.com to get your free starter pack. Hello and welcome to the Soundworks Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman and this week I had the chance to talk with co-supervising sound editors Per Hallberg and Karen Baker Landers about their work on the film Ghost in the Shell directed by Rupert Sanders. First off, thank you guys both so much for taking the time to talk with me. I would love to just understand how it was that this project landed in your laps. How did it end up with you guys? We kind of ended up with it uh, in in the other from the other direction. We got a call from uh, from Amblin from uh, Mark Graziano, who we worked with in the past. With uh, he's the head of post at at uh, Amblin, and he called us up and basically told us about this project that they might need some help, and um, so that's that's how that came about. And then he set up a meeting with us and Rupert and his picture editors. Um, Neil and Bill, and we sat down and chatted with them, and and you know, so that was it. Come came out of nowhere, and we kind of have to form a relationship with them, and and they didn't really know who we were, and <laughs> you know, so it was a little bit, you know, why don't you guys get to it and show us some stuff, and and let's do this thing. So that's how it. Okay. That's how it happened. Awesome. So I guess really my first question is, is uh, did either of you know much about Ghost in the Shell or any of the storylines or the history of this this franchise? No, um, we didn't okay. didn't know much about it, really. But one of the edicts from Rupert was from the beginning, because that's, I think that's what they'd done in pre-production and during production was, he said, you know, before anybody does any work, you or anybody on your crew, I'd like them to see these the anime films um mm-hmm. because you know somewhere we want the feeling or the idea of that to be the basis of what you guys do and um we want to keep that it's a fan-based film so that's something that they took quite seriously and and i think somewhere in the bottom of course we started somewhere there but then with a live action film you know things tend to flush out and change and grow and mold and you know but somewhere there's there's uh, a a sense of that in the bottom of it all yeah how much time did you guys have during the pre-production stages how early on did they bring you on board and how much kind of direction were you given initially well we weren't we were brought on they they had been working had somebody else had been had started the film and mm-hmm. um, due to uh, different circumstances, could not come over to L.A. to finish. And so the film had, there had been a minimal amount of work done for maybe the, the first 15 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were, we were brought on, you know, the, the film had a, a very rough cut. I don't know if the director's cut had been finished yet, but... Uh, you know, we had a very quick turnaround at the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, so we didn't have a lot of um, kind of startup time. We were kind of thrown right into the fire. <laughs> and at that time, did they have a, a release date in mind already? Yes. Yeah. Was it the same one that they stuck with, Pear? Do you remember? Um, you know, it's, it's one of those that you tend to forget. But, but I do know <laughs> that 
knew it was a tight schedule from the beginning, and it just it didn't get better as we were going along. So that was yeah, that was um, you know, and then you throw in uh, preview screenings and changes and visual effects into that. So there was it was quite the ride. Yeah, you know, I'm curious is when you do have a film like this that you're being thrown into, and you have the task of really picking up and just going 100. percent What was the priorities? What were some of the? There's a lot of guns. There's a lot of vehicles. There's robotics. There's environmental, atmospheric, ambiences in the city, and all these considerations. So, how do you really make a priority list? Where, where did you guys head first? Well, I think that the the go plan from Rupert and the film, t- the production team, the the filmmakers was. You know, if they were, you know, go off and do, create a bunch of stuff and show it to us. You know, they they wanted to, you know, in that simple way of putting it, we need we need a lot of stuff and we need a lot of design in this one. Can't you go do some stuff and show it to us? And uh, instead of sending, you know, one thing at a time, specifics for them to look at. You know, Karen and I looked looked at the movie and. We picked the first 15 minutes of the film, and instead of sing- sending specific effects, we said, let us, you know, why don't we go in here and we'll do a fast pass kind of on that first 15 minutes, which was the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. um, in, so that we could show them this is a take on what this part of the movie could feel and sound and be like. And... Uh, and and it was a good part of the movie because it has the city, it has that the the ghost cam shots in there, it has the action, it has gunshots, has some vehicles, it has all those pieces, um, and it's much better for us to kind of create something like that and do a quick mix with our team at the shop and then send it to them. Or and in this case, we set up a seven-one room right close to their cutting room so that we could bring it over there, put it up, and uh, okay, instead of showing you sound effects and sound design pieces, let us show you this first 15 minutes and uh, play it. You know, because then it feels like a movie, and I think for filmmakers it's much easier to determine, does this feel right? Is it going the right direction? And and it turned out to be a good way to do it, because that kind of afforded them to kind of look at it and then start giving us reactions and notes to that. Mm-hmm. What what was the feedback and kind of the iterations that you went through for Major to emphasize the fact that she is part robot? What, what direction did you guys go? Well, with um, Major, because like you know she's part cyborg, yeah, and you have, but she's supposed to be the top of the line, and so we really kept her her um, any kind of there was two parts to this. There was the movement you would hear from the outside of the body. Mm-hmm. And then if she were wounded or shot and you actually saw the inside of her body, then we made, that's where we applied more of the kind of cyborg type sound. When, when she's walking and moving around, we kept her normal and clean because people in the movie, you know, they mistake her for human. So, um, so we, we kept it very clean. She had a very specific walk. We had, you know, the, the Foley was very specific for Major and her feet and um, how she moved. Um, but when, if she was shot or injured, 
then you got to see the inner workings of what her body was all about. And that's when we would put certain sounds to that, maybe a little bit of electronic. Um, we tried to use sounds that were not servo-y on her, that were maybe a little bit more evolved. And so she had, you know, we used kind of like a, almost like a nylon pull sound, Do you know, something that was a much more um, pleasant. And so she was, she was not a, a super, you know, um, complicated from the, from the body perspective um, as say Kuze was, he was much more complicated because he was a, he was a completely different version of this shell and, um, you know, we uh, made him a lot more um, kind of broken. And yeah. so he had a, an emotional, his, you know, his movement, we didn't want, again, we have a few servo sounds, but we really wanted his movement to be emotional. So it had us, we worked really hard on getting a certain pitch for when his arm would move or something. It always want you, the sounds just kind of like almost like a musical instrument. There are just moments where just want it to pull at someone's heartstrings a little bit. Um, then there were times when he's angry or he's injured and we went a little bit more, you know, kind of um, dynamic on his movement, more electronic. He had a stutter in his speech pattern where we would go in and physically cut up, you know, the words, you know, we processed his voice, but as far as his movements, much more complicated than Majors. That's what I was curious about, because the character played by Kuzi, played by Michael Pitt, the voice, was that production or was that looped afterwards? How, how did you guys handle the processing of his voice? Well, he was, his performance was fantastic from, from production. He really, and he, that's kind of his, you know, if you listen to him act in other movies, you know, he really has a very specific speech pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but his performance was really great. And we just built off of that. We did do ADR in certain areas. For the most part, we, you know, we tried to maintain as much production as possible. But then we did a series of, of um, you know, uh, voice processing to get him to sound the way he did ultimately. When and And, you know, the more we tried to, you know, kind of keep you emotionally attached to him at times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a, 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 a very complex process just to get him to sound the way he did. Hmm. The, the film sets up uh, kind of this world of the town and the, or the, you know, the, the city, the metropolitan city of where it takes place. How did you guys want to represent, I guess, the tone of the world and the city? It, it, it seems that references that we have of the future might sound like it's all over the place. How did you guys want to represent it in this film? I think, uh, I mean, the, the major thing that was consistent through the film and also part of the story and part of what what Major was talking about is the constant flow of information mm-hmm. and uh, the constant input from the world around them. If it is through, you know, communication between two characters, if it is uh, downloading information, if it's walking down the street, hearing, seeing, getting these constant inputs, um, and I think that that was a huge part of the uh, um, the overall feel of the film. I think, and uh, there's a couple of spots where 
where you're actually going away from that, and that's when you realize, you know, what happens the other times, that it's, it's always something pumping in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that was a it was a cool thing, and it separates it from many other many other you know films of the same same genre, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie Campagna, you know, was one of our guys and another one of our designers, and we the data flow that that Pear's talking about in the film, you know, was multi um, layered. And it had, you know, dialects from all over the world because it's a, it's a, it is a city in the future, but it's much like, you know, Manhattan or or L.A. or London, where you have multicultural, you know, um, and a diverse group of people living there. And so we had, you know, seven O recordings of, you know, different cities. We had somebody go into to Japan to record. We had Arabic. We had Scandinavian. We had you know, um, European um, kind of melting pot of different dialects, mm-hmm. you know, as well as, as well as, you know, English. And so in the film, you hear that on the streets, the data that you hear is also, um, you know, all, all different kinds of dialects. And so that was one of the most interesting to just get the right flavor, because if you put too much stuff, it just sounded like mud. Mm. If you just had to do it just enough to get the different feel that, yeah, you this is a world where it's a big, one big melting pot. And so that was actually a lot of fun and probably one of my favorite, you know, kind of moments throughout the film is all the data flow. Mm. That to me was something that you guys were maybe leaning into more of the use of your surrounds and coming off the front wall. What were some of the moments that you're kind of considering trying to immerse the audience in that feeling of being surrounded by the, this data? I think a good example, Karen. You might you might want to talk about uh, Kuze's layer when it comes to that, because that was a right. Yeah, you know that's a that's a good spot if you want to check that one off. Well, Kuze's layer toward where he gets major and he has her hanging up in his in his layer towards you know towards the end of the film, somewhat. Um, you know that's where he's she's plugged into the internet. She's plugged in his network and, you know, he's hiding in this network um, and that's how he moves through and around. And so we used dial, we used dialogue, you know, words um, and sped them up, slowed them down. Sometimes it was just a mundane um, conversation but everything was woven, you know, um, it was just a tapestry of, of different sounds and dialogue and also some kind of electronic internet workings in this big room and every time we go to his lair. And one of the things we did is because if they're plugged in and he's hiding in, the, in, in this world of data and moving around the city, then, you know, when he would get angry, we would have the data react. Hmm. Um, you know, we tried to keep emotionally just to, you know, again, use that kind of thing like music. So, um, it played the emotion in the room and not, and it was never just constant. And, uh, you know, that took quite a while to, to achieve that feel. Um, and then one of Pear's favorite parts is with the data is when we first kind of meet major in her room 
and she's plugged in and you hear the sounds and it's more subtle. It's a different data flow. It's not similar. Tuesday's lair is dark and sinister. Um, in uh, Major's room, it's she's plugged in. She's, you know, basically she turns off at night and she's plugged in and she's just uploading all this data throughout the night. Mm-hmm. And when she sits up and wakes up in the morning, um, she unplugs and it goes completely silent. And it gives the audience a feel of like what it would, what it's like, you know, silence can be so powerful and it gives the audience this perspective of what it must be like to be in her world and in her head. So the the data and, and, and living in there in her world, that was a challenge and one of the most fun things that, you know, our crew worked on. Nice. And one of the, the, I guess, the opening battles with these kind of geisha robots, they have some really interesting movements to them. Obviously, they are more, they are all robotics. There's no human aspects to them. But then I guess, I guess in that scene, I noticed that just the sounds, the different sounds of how um, the different types of weapons, wh- what were some of the considerations of the types of weapon sounds that you wanted to have? Was it supposed to be something that people are familiar with? Or was it kind of a hybrid of, you know, a futuristic sounding gun? was uh it was uh, based on real things that we all know and recognize i think um but that scene had almost different chapters to it mm-hmm. um the, it was it was treated more as a normal if you want to call it shoot 'em up scene right when when we're in that room and the bad guys come in through the door and they start shooting to get the the pleasure bots to start downloading Mm-hmm. That's treated pretty much, you know, like like anything. It sounds what it looks like. Um, second chapter is when we stop after that, and then all of a sudden, uh, bullets come come flying in. They in the scene, the the characters are looking around. They don't know where it's coming from, and it's the same thing for us as an audience. So we decided not to play any of the gunshots themselves in that part. Uh, so all you hear is the bullets coming in and hitting, uh, which makes you a little bit looking around, where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. And that goes on for a little bit until Major comes in through that great, the great moment when she comes in through the big glass, pane glass window. Uh, and that at that point it shifts again. So now you do hear the gunshots, but it's in a strange slow mo kind of sequence. Um, so that we took some creative license to to create that instead a completely different feel. She goes through her thing when she comes in for the first time, kind of showing us what she is capable of and what she is all about. Uh, she takes care of business, then it stops again and shifts one more time into ultra-reality when she comes out of that moment. And at this point, you hear very clearly the details as in her feet on the glass charts are left over, the wind from the city and the feeling of the city outside, mm-hmm. you know, on the 30th floor up and, and the bamboo chimes in the ceiling, brings you back to super-reality again and then she walks out. So that scene is, again, it's, it's shifting. It's almost like four different chapters, and, and they're all treated a little bit different. But we did try to get the guns to be pretty just, we wanted those to be big and bold and um, 
pretty familiar. So those are just big guns. Uh, the, the geisha, you know, the pleasure bot movement, you know, they're made of porcelain. And again, this is another instance where the inside of the body is different from what you hear on the outside. So, you know, the, we have a bit of a, a, a very pretty, again, we use kind of like a nylon sound when they move, you just hear, Z- mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's, it's soothing in a way and rhythmic, but, um, not much other movement. We tried to stay away from having their feet, you know, the sounds of their feet, just the the sound of the silk maybe um, on the kimonos. And then uh, when she's like major blows, the one geisha is apart, you hear the porcelain crack, crack. And then you see that Mm. there's like this kind of bronze, you know, in the face. It's, it's um, this, uh, metal workings inside there. And so we kind of tried to go to almost like the sound that you would hear of like a clock, inner workings of a clock. Mm. And, you know, to make the sounds kind of match the visual. So again, it was one of those kind of interesting things where you just kind of sit there and say, you know what, we, if it's a pleasure bot, she's not going to be pleasurable if she's clanking around and making all these weird sounds. <laughs> right. You know, so we tried to to be mindful, but still it's one of those things you have to kind of walk that fine line. It's like we want to be as literal as we can and make in, and smart as we can, but it also the as an audience you kind of want to hear some cool moments. So it was the, you know, interior of the body versus how they move through the world, two different types of sounds. Yeah. And then when it came to talking with your director and your composers, I guess you had Lauren Balfi and Clint Mansell on music. How did it work with spotting? Was there a conscious decision of moments to build up with music and other moments where sound would lead? How did it work for you guys kind of coordinating with everybody? Well, it's interesting because this was one of the first times I can remember ever doing this because the film is so highly conceptual and we, and, and, you know, they were, music had a lot of pressure on them. Um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what we did, which, like I said, I think it's the first time I've ever done it is where we took pre-dubs and we brought the composer and his group in and the director, picture editors, and, you know, we sat with the mixers and we played the pre-dubs, no dialogue, no music, just sound design and effects. So they could hear exactly where we were living sonically. And it was very helpful. And to be honest, it's the way, you know, you should always try to collaborate. But with schedules, it's so hard. And, uh, or maybe your composers in another country. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was very helpful, I think, to the composers as well as to us. Um, you know, but, it, so that was the only kind of spotting session that we had. Because at the end of the day, once you get, you know, music was changing to the very last minute. Mm-hmm. Visual effects were changing even, you know, to the very, very, very last minute. <laughs> and so conceptually, you're trying to keep up with all that. And, and sound design and effects is usually the the one thing that gets, you know, pushed around a bit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were reconceptualizing things as they changed visually and as the music changed. And, you know, and maybe you had three weeks to work on something and now all of a sudden new music, new frequencies, new visual effects, and yeah. you've got, you know, a half an hour to, <laughs> to make it cool. Yeah. And so 
that's where working with like a really great crew comes in. But it was a tough one. It was really tough. What is it like working with a new director, not only who doesn't have as many films, but how do you coordinate the conversations so that everyone can collaborate? Like, How do you get a sense of his pulse of how he wants to use sound and, and how he can leverage your guys' abilities? I think, uh, I think with Rupert and maybe, you know, there's others similar to that. I think we found very quickly uh, that it works best for him if we go away and do stuff, mm -hmm. uh, put it together to be able to present it um, to him in a bigger, in a bigger piece and, and play it for him and let him react off of that instead of, he, he can describe stuff, he can, he can, um, you know, tell you what kind of direction and feel he's looking for, but I think it's a lot easier for him to take a look at something, feel how does this feel to me and what do I need it to be doing different or what do I like and what do I not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he definitely would, you would play something for him and he would, when he was discussing what he wanted to hear, he never really, sometimes he would describe a sound, but mostly he would describe a feel. I want to feel this way. Mm -hmm. I want to feel, you know, um, compassionate or I want to feel, you know, anger or fear or, you know, so he was really great to work with because he's a highly conceptual guy. He's really, um, he's just got a mind, one of those minds that is constantly creating and thinking. And it's challenging because you're trying to keep up with that. But also my mind works a little bit like that too. So it, you know, it was, it was, um, um, I think kind of, he, and because of the schedule and back to your original question, you know, we had people, visual effects working round the clock. We had the composer and their team, um, Katie and Sam working around the clock. And then we kind of had to put it all together when it came onto the stage, mm -hmm. you know, with, with the mixers and, um, Mark Patterson and Andy Nelson. And, and that's where, and we were left alone a lot, you know, because there were demands on Rupert and his time and Neil and, and Billy. And so we put stuff together, kind of got, we got the directive and we, we went for it and then they would come in and hear it. So because of, you know, kind of that this had a lot of pressure towards the end, it was like, okay, here's all the stuff you guys go and then we'll bring the team in, you know, the filmmakers and see what they think. So you're kind of always, you know, kind of in the back of your mind thinking, is this, what is this going to be? Any, are they going to like it? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so it, it, uh, it was an interesting process. One of the big set pieces at the end was this spider robot character. And for me, there hadn't been many robots that were that size scale, and it kind of showed the potential of robots, right. uh, what was possible. You know, what references did you have? Because I think this character was something that did harken back to the original Ghost in the Shell series. So how did you guys want to represent it, and what was the feedback or direction you were given? Well, it, we started that one early on, and that was, again, this was one of the last scenes that came together visual effects-wise. Uh, so... I can't even remember how many versions of that we worked on, but uh, but uh, one of our designers, John Title, was was the one that kept going back and changing it and changing it and mm -hmm. and creating that robot itself. It went through different uh, versions of it. At one point, 
they wanted, uh, I mean, I guess the idea was that it was supposed to be modern rob robot, but not the latest and the most high-tech. It's supposed to sound a little bit, you know, clumsy and old-fashioned also, so it's not super slick. Uh, needed to have the weight, and at one point, I know, you know, they were asking, wouldn't it be great if it had a voice? Hmm. And we, you know, John, again, did a lot of work on that, and then we had to, we played that, but then that was a Rupert reaction again. Now now it starts to sound too much like an animal, so we have to back that off. So it was a very, you know, that was one that we, we did a ton of different versions before we ended up where it was at the end. And... Um, you know, it came down to weight, power, rhythm, and uh, and get us to understand that you know she's she's teasing him away from Kuse, so that uh, you know, and try to make him wear himself out. And uh, it it was many versions, but a very interesting one to do. I think the end result worked pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The end result, what we finally kind of ended up doing was like Per said it was to we ended up making a decision it's about the size and the weight just the feet mm-hmm. just that boom, 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 coming you know off camera you don't you feel it the room you know the theater shakes a little bit and then when we're close up on it it had some sinister you know movements um and which but but we really did come full circle and it was just I think it works pretty well you know sometimes when you're you know in your home or if you have experienced an earthquake and you just hear that rumble outside or you hear a bang that this you think I don't know what that is but it's massive mm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and, and that's and kind scary of, yeah and scary you know that if that thing is is coming towards me I'm you know I'm a little freaked out and that's kind of the feel that we ended up with is just going for, and I think it was effective. I loved it. We stripped a lot of stuff out and just went for those feet. And, um, you know, you play that in a good theater and that low end, it's, it's very effective. Yeah. Did, did you guys record new uh, weapon sounds for that or was that material that you had from before? Well, it was, it was a no, no new weapons recordings per se, mm-hmm. but it was one of those, let's start from the bottom and try to build something with, you know, multiple flavors to to create a combination of something that had the weight and the size and uh, and and the feel that we needed. Uh, it was also interesting because the the type of guns on the actual robot kept changing on us. Also, uh, at one point, it was mini guns on there. You know, the the ones that spin very fast, and then it went into more of a repeater pumping action modern gun. So that, again, it was a process that kept changing on us, but, uh, but it was, was basically, you know, John was, was matching things together to get the real impact and the closeness when we were right on it, and, but at the same time keep that weight and the size of it uh, to make it work. So say sometimes when it comes to weapons, we do, you know, we do a lot of, films that are in the future and you play around with ideas and you know usually you go old school because it's that that's still as cool as it gets you may start with a 
you know, some kind of a, an, you know, kind of an electric wind up or, you know, boom, but you still go for the old school explo or the gun, just that size and that weight. And I think that's kind of what we went back to a lot in this film. The thing I was wondering is with such a compressed schedule or, you know, a looming deadline, you don't really get the flexibility to go out and record new sounds. And so it's a matter of using sounds that you've had, but then redesigning and reinterpreting them in, in this way. Do you have a preference of having tons of time and being able to really try out and, and discover? Or do you feel like there's an advantage of being kind of under the gun and being a little more decisive and trying to come up with a solution that everyone agrees with? Well, it's, it's you know, they're both... Both different, both versions are are exciting and fun, right? Yeah. When you have a lot of time, you spend a lot of time thinking, and you're starting from scratch in many ways, and and you really have a tight plan and what you're going to do, and you <laughs> and you follow that, and and it slowly grows, and that's really satisfying in so many ways. At the same time, when you're under the gun, you kind of have to quickly take a stand and make a decision and it, in that kind of spontaneity and under time pressure um, very cool things happen that you maybe didn't think of uh, that it was going to do and it's that initial edge you know sometimes it happens when you do a very quick tempt up you you come up with things that because of the sometimes simplicity sometimes uh, the speed that you have to work, you come up with something really cool and then you find yourself trying to make it better later when you have a lot of time and it just never has that edge to it that that fast, quick, initial thing was and you tend to go back to something simpler like that or, or more edgy like that. So, you know, it's, it's, they're both, they both have their uh, charm, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, it's exciting. I would say I'd always opt for more time, mm -hmm. to be honest, yeah. because sometimes I agree. Sometimes you get something and it's edgy and it's, and it's cool. Then you have, you know, and visual effects changing. And it's very different if it's, if it's, a, if it's kind of a, a very, you know, a VFX heavy film and they're changing constantly and music and scores coming in. I'm always feeling like, wow, you know, the original concept was fantastic, but now we've just not, you know, it's all about the detail and the subtle moments that you want to work around the music and you want to, you know, I, I always say the magic is in the details. And so when you don't have the time and you lose that, it depends on what it is. It depends on the scene, but I would, and, and then you discover the personality of a film as you work, you know, we've all done that, right? You're working on the film and you go, God, why didn't I think of that like three months ago? Mm. And, mm -hmm. and so, that would have been way cool. And then, then you have a continuity issue because maybe you want to reconceptualize one thing, the communication devices throughout the film or the vehicles throughout the film. And so, yeah, it is a creative process. And I think, you know, most of the people have in, in this, in, in, in the sound industry, have learned to work really fast and, and, you know, come up with cool stuff and you're, you're always learning how to hone in your skills, but it is a creative process. And to me, it's, um, we're losing a lot of that, you know, schedules get so tight that <laughs> sometimes you, you just are making it work really well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you had more time, um, and I'm not saying year, a year on a film, but. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah, I, I, 
so hope no producers are listening to this because <laughs> but I would always opt for more time. You know, for both of you, I guess, looking ahead to the rest of the year, what, what, what projects are you guys going to be digging in? Because I feel like you guys tend to work together on most projects, right? There's not too many that you won't co-supervise? Well, we're, we're uh, I guess we've worked together for so long that it feels like we always work together on everything. But the reality is that this year we've, we've kind of been on on separate projects Mm -hmm. pretty much all year except this one yeah uh but we're always there we we share an office we share thoughts we (laughs) share ideas and it doesn't really matter who does what we're both kind of involved in it as it goes along which is a great way for us to work because we can we can make sure we're always covered but also you know it's it you get used to that right i sit and i have an idea and then karen comes in and of course she has a different idea and then out of <laughs> we come out with a good plan, yeah. and then next step is that we bring the crew in, and of course they bring their part to the to the equation, and we spend a lot of time talking through stuff with all the guys and girls that work with us, and I think that's that's one of the most satisfying thing about what we do and how we work mm-hmm. is this you know we always strive to make something better more interesting than any one person could possibly do on their own. And I see that as such a great thing in our our partnership and working together. Hmm. And schedules are so crazy anymore, you know, and the and, and the shifts, you know, the how how frequently films will push their schedule and then you're committed to something else or, you know, it's it's it gets very complex. So we've worked together for over twenty five years and our the, the the one of the benefits is that our our you know our our clients are very comfortable with either one of us, mm-hmm. and so they feel like they're being taken care of, and we're very conscious of how we proceed with our schedules, so we can say, hey, you know, this is going to be big. I'm going to need your help on this because we're going to be on multiple stages, and mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, it's it's a it's been a very effective way for us to to. Uh, work and to keep and to take care of the you know the, the client <laughs> that that is a job it does require a keen eye to, yeah. to make sure they're happy yeah it is <laughs> and then i have to put up with the fact that karen of course drives me nuts most of the time <laughs> and i do the same with her but that's part of uh that's part of the charm that, i think that's part so, of the process yeah 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 no it's it's really good i mean it, you know this Almost every aspect of filmmaking is is about teamwork, right? Mm-hmm. You have these guys in in all kinds of different that talk about I did this and I did that. You know, the reality is we we don't and we shouldn't. You know, we're the first ones to admit that without our great crew that we have, that we're just honing together and it's like family away from home. Mm-hmm. Without them, you know, this this would not be as good at all, and that's. Also, depending on how you are personality-wise, I think we both enjoy that teamwork and working together with people. Sitting alone in a room by myself is just not my thing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's very rewarding both, you know, to get through the day and get through the logistics of it, but the creative part to work together, I mean, I think we can bring it to such a great level, and then that continues then into working together with a the composer, then working together with the director and the picture editors who are very involved in this film. You know, that's, that's 
it's so rewarding and satisfying to work that way. Yeah. Well, Pear and Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Ghost in the Shell. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the work that you guys did and along with everyone else beside you on your team. So congratulations again on a fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you much. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to my chat with the sound team of Ghost in the Shell. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, presenting My Road Real, the world's largest short film competition. Now with over $500,000 in prizes to be won, visit myroadreel.com to get your free starter pack.